Hey, this is Jose Galison of No Way Jose. You can find me on the No Way Jose YouTube channel. You can also find me just about anywhere audio podcasts are out, all the major podcatchers. I always forget to mention this, but I'm also on Odyssey. So definitely go check that out. I definitely should make more of an emphasis to to push that. Today, I'm going to be continuing my Anarchist Handbook series. Um, if you guys aren't aware, I've already done Sterner with Magnus Panvidia. I did uh, Rothbard with Dave Smith, and this will be my third uh, one with that. I have on Friday, I'll be recording with uh, Ace Arcus on Twitter, um, and we will be doing Benjamin Tucker. So today we're doing Emma Goldman, and I have with me Thaddeus Russell. And yeah, so we'll, we'll be touching that. Um, as always, give me money. I like that. Patreon.com, Snowway Jose 2020. Go check out Top Lobster. Uh, he's the fucking dude. I have my merch is on there. Pretty much every, damn near half the po- Liberty Podcasters merch is on there. Uh, you can find something you like, even if you don't want some merch from a podcast. Uh, with that, let's go ahead and get get it fucking popping. What's up, dude? <laughs> hey, hey! I appreciate you coming on. It really is awesome to have you on here. Um, you're you're fucking you're a big dog. It's uh good to have you here. <laughs> Woof. Woof. <laughs> uh, you want to go ahead and give uh give a little intro of yourself to those who don't know who you are. Oh, I'm Thaddeus Russell. I'm the author of Renegade History of the United States. I am the host of the Unregistered Podcast, and I am the founder and CEO of Renegade University. All right. Awesome. Uh, I, I feel a little bit bad, but I kind of I tricked you. This was all just a, a ruse to get you on to talk about age of consent. Awesome. <laughs> I'm just fucking with you. Uh, <laughs> I just was going to briefly bring that up. I was brought up. I was in that whole shit, too, while ago, if you remember that whole thing. I was the dude who, I don't know if you recall, I was the one who was like had that tweet that, that Clint brought up. Um, but no, I, I talked, I talked about you, Jose. I talked about you. Yes. I know very well who you are. Yeah. yeah it well, I know, it's just, it's just a name, you know, people forget that shit. So uh, yeah, it, it, that ended up being a whole, whole thing. And I'm not going to go too deep into it because, uh, someone will clip it and take shit out of context and fucking try to drag us. And I mean, I like Twitter fights. I'm pretty good at them, but I don't really feel like it right now. <laughs> no, me neither. <laughs> but, but, uh, yeah, let's go ahead and get into Goldman. Um, you want to go ahead and give a quick intro of her ideology. Actually, you know, I want to know first off, like, what did she mean to you? Like, how she affected your thinking? That's actually the first question. I oh, ask. interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I was a socialist from birth because my parents were socialists when I was born. They were revolutionary socialists, Trotskyists, in fact, and very committed to that. Um, and I took up the mantle and I was a socialist myself until my mid 30s. So for a big chunk of my life there. Um, that's who I was politically. So Emma Goldman was not, you know, a character in the socialist play. So we didn't really read her. She wasn't an icon. She wasn't a hero to us, but my friends in college who were political were anarchists, left-wing anarchists, communist anarchists. And of course they loved Emma. So I learned about her first from them, although I didn't really study her until later when I was in graduate school and actually studying the history of the American left, which I'm teaching a course on at RU pretty soon, by the way. Just watch that book episode. (laughs) Yeah. Oh yeah. And yeah, uh, yeah, it was fun. And Emma will be a major part of that course, by the way. So, so yeah, Emma Goldman was not important to me until my politics changed and my politics changed, I suppose, in an anarchistic direction, you know, in my forties and And now, and I've certainly moved generally in that direction. You know, I don't know exactly what I am politically, but I'm certainly an anti-statist. I can say that very, very firmly and confidently. And so her, certainly her analysis of the state is really very important to me and certainly resonates with me. Her anti-capitalism for me, from my point of view, is sort of 50% right and 50 percent not so hot and we can talk about that yeah i'm a bit of an cap myself so <laughs> yeah yeah so i mean i'm and i don't have i mean i have different ideas about capitalism than most libertarians do um but but i'm certainly more positive toward it than she was but we'll get into that um yeah so emma goldman i don't she's never i can't really say is she a hero she's so complicated in her thinking she has positions on about 50 different issues, all of which are very important. And about half of them I'm with her on and about half I'm not. Um, but it's all very nuanced and difficult to go through, but it's, it's complex. So I can't really say that Emma Goldman is necessarily like makes me, makes my heart swell or anything like that. But I do think she was at moments, most certainly heroic in particular, her opposition to world war one 
which landed her in prison and exile. Uh, I mean, that's some of the most heroic stuff ever done in American history. The opponents of World War One, you know, many of them landed in, landed in prison or were thrown out of the country. Um, and they just, it was incredible what they did and what she did. But, um, and then on birth control, on sex work, sexuality, generally, she was quite excellent, not perfect according to, you know, current standards of the left and political radicalism and even among libertarians. But for, you know, the 1910s and 1920s, she was the one, she was as good as it got uh, on those issues. So that's, you know, and then there's issues around political violence that I don't like at all from her. Um, and, but um, it's a big mix. I think there's some elitism in her thinking too, which I want to talk about with you. Mm -hmm. I, I think people miss in her. And I think that's a, I think it's maybe the fundamental problem with her from my point of view. Yeah. And it's kind of, it doesn't, people are surprised when they hear that, but it's really, it's right in this essay that we're about to talk about. You can yeah. see it, I think in the second or third paragraph, you can see some elitism sneaking yeah, in it's, there. It's kind of the main uh, point in my opinion, really. Yeah. Uh, which I mean, I, I'm, I might disagree with you a little bit, but I mean, but I also, I kind of go on both sides, if that makes sense. Like I can see both sides of the argument. I, I don't necessarily, I'm not rooted in one way or the other. Sure. <laughs> sure. But. And elitism is not, not necessarily a bad thing. It's just something mm -hmm. that, you know, some people don't like, and they may not, may not be aware that it is indeed in Emma Goldman's thinking. Right. <laughs> and so I just want to show who she really is, I think. Um, and if you're, if you think elitism is good, and by the way, there are very powerful arguments for elitism, including among libertarians and anarchists, in fact. I'm not one of those people. So it's not what I like in her thinking. And I think it's very important to show that. Yeah. Um, you touched on that. She has a bajillion different uh, points yeah. in her ideology, but I did want to briefly uh, try to, since this is supposed to be, I'm going through all these anarchist handbook uh, essays. And I, I do want to try to give a good idea of what her rough um, ideology was to the listeners. Um, mm -hmm. And so if you could, possibly give a quick breakdown i've i'm not like super well versed so i can't really do it too well i've listened to a few audiobooks and i've read this essay so if you could give a summation although i know she has a very it's you know to some really to sum up anyone's thinking at least a a a, a deeply thinking person like she is it's a it's a hard task but but roughly mm -hmm. speaking if you could mm -hmm. kind of sum up her thinking well i mean she's the most famous anarchist in american history mm -hmm. there's no question about that so she's an anarchist. She really is an anarchist. She's an absolute anti-statist. Um, from that, she's also anti-democracy. At least she's opposed to the form of democracy in the United States. And that's where the opposition to the masses and the majority comes from in her thinking, I think. She's opposed, was opposed to voting. This is why she opposed the suffrage movement, you know, which was a very radical, crazy thing to do for a woman in the 1910s. But she did. And I think she was, I, I'm with her on that one, by the way. <laughs> uh, she was an anti-capitalist, which I mentioned earlier. And that's for me, as I said, sort of problematic um, in that she was elitist. She was anti-consumerist. She believed that most of what was produced in terms of consumer goods and capitalism were worthless. Most of the things were worthless and that people spent money on stuff that they didn't need or even really want. They were fooled into thinking that, that they wanted these things. It's very, very common left-wing attitude toward consumerism, what they call consumerism, which is really just people buying stuff that they want, you know. Um, but I will say this, people have to remember the time she was operating in, which was the turn of the 20th century. And this was the this was the rise of this brand new beast in world history, which was capitalism, industrial capitalism. This was the real deal. This wasn't just like little workshops turning out shoes and in Massachusetts in the early 19th century. These were big factories, big railroads, big capitalists, robber barons. And most importantly, and this is where a lot of libertarians, I think, missed the point. Um, those great capitalists of that time were aided and abetted from the beginning of their careers by the state. So all sorts of regulations were put into place at the turn of the 20th century, specifically, often explicitly, to help particular capitalists who the state wanted to own and operate the railroads, the steel factories, the banks and the rest of it. So, you know, was was Andrew Carnegie really a free market individualist capitalist? No. I mean, you could very much argue that he was a wing of the state, in fact. And so her opposition, her violent, literally violent opposition to those capitalists, I think, you know, I think it makes more sense than people might think 
because again, from an anarchist perspective, even a, a, a right wing or, or libertarian anarchist perspective, because in a sense, you know, this was her, her attempts to kill capitalists was really an attempt to kill the state because the state without the state, those guys would never have risen to the heights they achieved. Hmm. And, um, but the, the part that I don't like about her anti-capitalism, as I've said, is her anti-consumerism. You know, I yeah. just, I think that, um, I think that capitalism has given people what they've wanted. And I think that was revolutionary in the lives of countless people, certainly in this country, you know, in the early 19th century, just when Emma Goldman was born, you had to eat, uh, most people in this country had to eat stuff that was grown right around them. Right. They had to all the clothes they wore, they either made themselves or they bartered for with neighbors. Most people never left, you know, a 10 mile radius from where they were born. Uh, you know, the idea of like eating tomatoes from across the world or having a refrigerator or drinking cold beer, you know, it was just impossible. It doesn't didn't happen. And capitalism brought all that to people. Working class people like Emma Goldman, poor immigrant working class women could go to movies that was revolutionary. They could go to Coney Island. They could go to department stores and buy fashions, clothes that were made in France. And this is what was happening during the time Emma Goldman was operating. She wasn't one of those women, uh, maybe unfortunately, but the whole class, that whole generation of immigrant women in New York City, Philadelphia, Boston at that time, that's mostly what they were doing. They were enjoying the fruits of capitalism and they were working in those factories to make money so that they could buy stuff, so they could have stuff so they could live better lives, so that they could be independent from men, independent from husbands and fathers who used to dominate the lives of women. And Emma Goldman was very keen, keenly aware of that. But her prescription for it was to say, yeah, don't go and buy stuff that's gonna make your life better. Uh, go kill a capitalist and wage revolution and have this uh, anarchist utopia, which may or may not serve your interests and may or may not give you Coney Island in movies and French fashions, right? She never wanted that. She never wanted the, the anarchist utopia to provide those things to people. It's actually unclear what she did want it to provide to people other than sort of a sense of satisfaction. And I suppose a connection to their labor, um, owning the fr fruits of their labor and having, I think what she most wanted was people controlling the politics, the community, being political all the time, which is what she was. And maybe at the heart of it, that's what I find most sad about her is that she was a fundamentally, and I'm talking like one of these people too, I am one of these people, a fundamentally, and you are too, relentlessly political person, right? It's not a great life, Jose, you know this. And that was Emma mm -hmm. Goldman more than anyone. She lived a fully, thoroughly political life all the time, which I think accounts for her pretty much constant anger and sadness and depression and anxiety and all the things that come with that. So, um, but she wanted that for all people, <laughs> you know, the anarchist world really is a deeply thoroughly political world because you've got to manage society, right? Yeah. Everyone yeah. has, has to manage society on large scale, right? It's not just your local neighborhood, but you've got to sort of have ideas and you have to sort of have a say in what's going on in the world around you, which means you've got to think and study and talk and argue about everything all the fucking time. Mm -hmm. You know, that's not, that's not a vision that turns me on. No, um, yeah. So, but that was Emma. And then again, you know, she also, the third thing about her, the third wing or third leg, I would say of her, of her ideas or thought was her for lack of a better term, sex radicalism. And this is where she was very exciting and very amazing and, and new and original and brave. You know, she championed birth control when that was anathema, when that was sinful. You know, was her and Margaret Sanger for a while were the only ones really taking up that mantle. And that changed, talk about take changing lives. My gosh, what's changed women's lives, everyone's lives really, more than birth control. People underestimate that. I mean, this was a liberating force like no other, because at that point, before there was birth control, what happened to women? They had to have all sorts of children, you know, 10, 12, 14, 15 children. This is what Margaret Sanger and Emma Goldman talked about all the time, especially poor and immigrant and working class women. They were saddled with this unbelievable burden that robbed them of having lives of their own. And birth control gave them that freedom to have a life of their own. Um, she also was pretty much the first, I think, major public intellectual in the United States to call for the de decriminalization of sex work, what we now call sex work, then called prostitution. 
Now, she didn't have the very best argument for it. She talked about prostitution as only um, what women did out of economic necessity, which was certainly part of why they did it. But we have lots of evidence to show that many women simply chose it as a preferable position, uh, job to cleaning floors or working in a factory, right? Mm -hmm. But nonetheless, she did call for the decriminalization of prostitution, which was an absolutely radical and wonderful position from my point of view. Yeah. So, um, and you know, she was also just generally for free love, for sexual freedom. She was opposed to puritanism, the puritanical ideas about sex being inherently bad, evil, dangerous, right? And so this was this was a major intervention by her. And it was it was the first intervention by, as I said, a major intellectual in this country. So, you know, those of us who are sex radicals today, she is absolutely a hero in that regard, and she is a pioneer. Yeah. So. No, I, one thing I'm hearing through this is, uh, it's really a point to a lot of these older thinkers is people need to recognize that they are people of their time. So like, mm -hmm. yeah, she may not have been perfect on sex work, but it's like, mm -hmm. you're also got to consider the time she came from. It's she, yep. and also how new some of these ideologies are. So got to give them credit for not being perfect on everything. Um, you know, we yep. have the advantage of, you know, kind of being on the shoulders of, of giants or whatever. So um, yep. And with with that, let's let's move on to her historical contributions, because I actually feel like, yes, she is a great thinker, but really and, and I've listened to like, some of her work and it's great. And but really, her contribution is more historical. I think personally, she mm. has had a large uh, contribution, historically <laughs> speaking. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, not to say she hadn't had a contribution intellectually, but she is far more of a historical figure than she is an intellectual figure, in my opinion. I don't know if you agree or not. And uh, so if we could get a rundown of that, I know it's a lot, but uh, I just want to give people a whole idea of who we're dealing with here. And when you say that, do you mean her participation in important historical events? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. Mm -hmm. yeah. I, I probably right. Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. So, but uh, I, I don't know if you want to touch on some of those events because you are the resident historian here. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, it's amazing when you look at her life, her biography, just, you can just look at a timeline. It seems like Emma Goldman was directly involved in every major political event from the 1880s to about the 1930s. <laughs> Certainly every major political event that anyone on the left would care about, she was there. Around, she was literally fighting. She was literally trying to kill people. She was engaged in strikes. She was engaged in protests. She was getting arrested every damn minute, it seemed like. Um, she was opposed to the war famously. She, uh, you know, it goes on and on. So she begins her career in a sense. She becomes famous with the Homestead Strike of 1892, which is this very large, very bloody, nasty strike um, at a steel company in Pennsylvania. And she, um, this is when she and Alexander Berkman, her partner, her lover and partner, allegedly, and I'm I'm 99.9% .9 sure Emma was part of this, Berkman did try to kill Henry Frick, who was the main guy who worked for Homestead, who uh, tried to, uh, basically, he called out the Pinkertons, that's armed guards, and shot a bunch of striking workers. Now, Berkman and Goldman believed in what they called propaganda of the deed, which was the idea coming, which, by the way, was derived from John Brown. That's, that was their inspiration. John Brown, of course, famously took up arms against the, the the slaveocracy, and the hope was that that would inspire slaves to wage their own rebellion. Of course, that never happened, and John Brown and his Confederates were hanged. So it was a total disaster. It was also um, what we now call vanguardism on the left. This idea that you know this, and this is very much Emma Goldman, right? This idea that the minority. She talks about the minority in this essay, right? The minority who are enlightened. Um, who know the path forward, who know what is best for the working class or the oppressed or the slaves or the women will lead them, will lead the oppressed to freedom, to liberation, to equality, to a, a new anarchist utopia. And so the idea was that we're going to kill capitalists and politicians, and then the working class will rise up and wage revolution. So Berkman broke into Henry Frick's, Frick's office, shot him a few times, stabbed him in the leg. And what happened? The workers who were there pummeled Berkman almost to death, beat him unconscious, <laughs> and he ended up in prison. Now, they never found any evidence implicating Emma Goldman in this, but I mean, come on. I mean, she was arguing publicly for the propaganda by, of the deed, and that she later did participate in, in uh, attempts at assassination. 
Um, and so I, you know, I am not a fan of that, even though I'm not a fan of Henry Frick at all. I think there is an elitism again there, this idea that the workers will do what we say they do, you know, when we show them what is right and how to live, you know, by killing people didn't pan out. And it turns out workers didn't want anarchism or socialism or collectivism or even a strike often, you know, so that was a problem. 1892, she gained the attention of authorities with that. And she went on to basically participate in many, many major strikes that are very famous in left-wing history in the 1890s, 1900s, 1910s. And, um, during that time she becomes involved in the birth control movement, Margaret Sanger, et cetera. Um, but world war one is when she becomes most famous. Right. And mm -hmm. she, she uh, famously opposes the war publicly, very loudly, as many socialists and anarchists were doing at the time, and almost all of them ended up in prison for violating the Sedition Act, which was passed explicitly to stop opposition to the war. It's quite quite amazing, although it's getting less and less amazing every day, considering that seems to be where we're headed now, that the federal government of the United States had a law making it illegal to voice opposition to foreign policy. To voice opposition to the government was illegal, and that was the grounds on which she was arrested and put in prison and then ultimately exiled and sent back to Russia, where she was born. So, you know, that's when she becomes famous, and then she moves to Russia. She then participates in the Bolshevik fucking revolution, of all things, also, and then becomes, and this is another thing I love about her, we all love about her, right? She was just about the first left-wing radical to call out the Bolshevik revolution for what it was, which was a totalitarian nightmare. And she was inspired, or I should say she became educated, I guess. She said this by the Kronstadt rebellion, which was an anarchistic rebellion of sailors against the Bolshevik regime uh, who were, they were slaughtered. And uh, Goldman saw this and, and Lenin said to her famously, there can be no free speech in a revolutionary period. So um, that was great. And then she ends up moving around the country after that, um, but, and becomes involved in the Spanish Civil War <laughs> in 1936, which is the most successful anarchist movement in world history. Anarchists in large parts of Spain took control of industries and government, and she was there and she participated in that. And I have a lot to say about that as well, but you know, it's just, it's amazing that she just goes from one major event to another, to another. So you're right. Her importance historically in terms of her participation in key events in world history is uh, maybe unparalleled. I can't even think of anybody else who has participated directly in that many major events, right? Yeah, it's mind-blowing how much shit It is mind-blowing. <laughs> it's like that's multiple episodes. It's like a series of podcasts of its own right there. Yeah, there's too much to talk about almost. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I'm a hesitant. I was hesitant to even ask. But I'm like, we kind of need to. Like, how do you mm -hmm. not broach that subject? But it's mm -hmm. like, fuck, this could be like three quarters of the episode itself. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. But uh, let's go ahead and start getting into the meat of this shit. Let's do the uh, the essay. This is the minorities versus majorities. And she mm -hmm. she initially kind of starts it out and kind of frames it as essentially quantity versus quality to kind of, you know, and, and she kind of you kind of conflate those with the majority versus minority, which you can kind of see how those two kind of correlate with each other. And yeah, that's where she starts out uh with it um i don't know if you have anything to riff on there i mean that's kind of she she uses it uh she uses an example of like for politics how you use you have to use a qual a quantity and obviously mm -hmm. quantity she's putting these two two things at odds with each other which i know a lot of people would probably be like they're not necessarily at odds but you know in in this this framing she's setting them at odds where like for mm -hmm. politics you need a quantity she even said production so she was obviously kind of you know using the show socialist rhetoric of how production requires the numbers to produce um and yeah that's how she starts it out and that's where she's going from there and you can already see where we're going you know you touch mm -hmm. on the elitism and stuff so yeah yeah i want to just sort of pause and sit on this for a second the so it's a it's an an essay about majorities or the majority and minorities right mm -hmm. you know and it's a very it's a very complex subject, very complex idea, this idea of the majority or the mass. She talks about the mass. So the 19th century, it has been argued, I think correctly, that was saw the advent or the appearance of the mass <laughs> or masses of people. What does that mean? You know, so we had the advent of mass democracy. So we have large countries like the United States allowing people to vote 
allowing people to choose their elected to choose their political leaders. We also, at the very same time, had the advent, as I said, of industrial capitalism, which was, you know, the creation of masses in terms of consumers, you know, thousands or tens of thousands or millions of people buying the same things, tens of thousands or millions of people working in factories, in capitalist enterprises, um, tens of thousands or millions and millions of people voting for political leaders or marching in the streets for political leaders. You know, mass democracy requires that. And so what you have is the tyranny of the majority for the first time, right? Prior to that, prior to the 19th century, it was tyranny of elites, monarchy, monarchists, monarch, monarchies and aristocrats, et cetera, and the church, right? Mm -hmm. They ran stuff, but not yeah. now. Suddenly it's, it's the people, the people who are sort of um, undifferentiated, you know, a mass, right? So the individual is lost there, according to Goldman, according to her essay and that that argument, which yeah. there's a lot to be said for that. Um, but you'll see in the way that she talks about it, that her opposition to it is elitist. So she talks about art, right? And how art now mm -hmm. is degraded and debased and terrible and worthless and valueless. Well, who who's to say, Emma? And so who, she says, well, look at Michelangelo. He did great art, but art like that doesn't exist anymore with the mass. Well, who is Michelangelo? <laughs> Michelangelo was, he worked, he was an artist who worked for elites, right? He was yeah. paid for, by elites. He was taken care of by elites. And that was, was art was for, you know, so who, whose side are you on here, Emma? It starts to get a little curious here. She also talks about Jefferson and Lincoln as great heroes in the past, which is very strange. You know, how are they, how are they the minority and how are they the, I mean, I suppose Jefferson was, was the minority within the British empire, <laughs> mm -hmm. um, but not for long. And certainly Lincoln was not, you know, these had the both men had masses of people fighting and dying for them. Yeah. Right. I do think she was using it to illustrate how I, I kind of, when I was reading this, I saw it has how ideas propagate. It's kind of how I saw it. Mm. And I, I guess you can kind of, this is something I feel like can be, you can imbue it with what a, a whole different bunch of meanings, the way this essay is written. And I know like, for example, she said, uh, I kind of thought of when you, in art, she said Michelangelo was dependent on his patron saint, no less than the sculptor or painter of today, except that the art connoisseurs of those days were far away from the matting crowd. Right, so for exactly. me, that kind of makes it sound like she's implying that because the population wasn't as large or as concentrated, mm. that it it allowed more of a more quality, which I can kind of see. I mean, I, I may not entirely disagree. Or agree, and then uh, and on so like in a smaller population with less of a because I feel like when you do have more people that are kind of inputting their opinion or public opinion upon something, mm -hmm. I can see how that would, to some extent, maybe corrupt isn't the right word, but it would influence the the product. So I, I get what she's getting at, but and then on the other hand, uh, one note I took is because uh, she said something. I don't remember. I mean, I could look it up, but she said something along the lines of how you know a lot of these people. I don't know how she worded. Essentially, you know, they don't don't get their due until after their time kind of deal. And I immediately thought mm -hmm. of like Rothbard or Konkin and like how, like, especially Konkin's a great example of like his ideas didn't really necessarily come to light until past his like, demise basically. And, mm -hmm. but that's kind of like a time preference thing to throw in an ANCAP word, you know? So it's, mm -hmm. I mean, it's, yes, it took longer for it to pay off. And so maybe it wasn't such a great, so great in his time, but you know, mm -hmm. it's something that's now seeing its light now. So I mean, you know, I mean, so there's arguments, you know, to do that's kind of an argument, I guess, against what she's saying. So, I mean, it doesn't mean that they don't have their thing later. So, I mean, you know, a lot of Hoppians probably hear time preference and jump up. So they know that like, yeah, you know, like if you have a lower time preference, you're going to end up with a better quality product in the end. But mm. I, I get, I, I can, I can see the argument. So I could, I feel like I could easily like argue both sides of this, mm. but it is definitely an interesting thing to think about and how ideas propagate and how they're influenced and such. So, yeah, what I mean, what she's reacting to, I think, is something I haven't mentioned yet, but it's the advent also of popular culture, right? That didn't mm -hmm. exist before, you know, meaning that cultural forms, art forms, entertainment, et cetera, that are that are enjoyed, purchased by masses of people, by millions of people. Right. So baseball, you know, becomes like a mass entertainment. You know, you have most Americans go to a baseball game right at some point in their lives. 
movies. This is the, the birth of movies, right? Most Americans go to movies. You know, millions and millions and millions of people go to the same movie, right? She hated that. And she assumed that that art, anything that was popular was bad. <laughs> very which, hipster. <laughs> which very, exactly. And so that became like the motif of the left. And so to this day, right? Leftists look down their nose at popular culture which is quite ironic because they claim to be speaking on behalf of the working class, but it's the working class who what? They're the ones who drive popular culture. They're the ones who like popular culture. They're the ones who goes to, go to Disneyland, right? Mm -hmm. um, and again, this is kind of, the, to me, that's the heart of the essay and it's the heart of the problem with Emma Goldman is that she has this dislike of things that are popular. <laughs> Whereas I think, you know, first of all, I don't think there's any way to objectively judge art I don't think there's any way to say one form of art is better than another form of art. One painting, Michelangelo, how do you prove to me that Michelangelo's paintings are better than, you know, whoever's paintings, right? Or or mm -hmm. comic books, right? Yeah. How, how do we know that? Please show me the formula that will prove that something, some form of art is better than Captain America. Um, I'm just speaking about what's behind you. Uh, yeah. So, um, <laughs> yeah, I just think that's very problematic. And it became really, as I said, like a central part of left-wing ideology. So all the books about the history of advertising are, they make the argument that advertisers controlled the minds of working class people and basically convinced them to want things and need things that they didn't want or need, right? It's totally elitist. I mean, it's the idea that people don't actually know what they want and know what they need in a, and they make wrong decisions that we know we know what they should have been buying and doing or not buying and doing back then or anytime. It's just, I, it's the thing I hate the most about the left. And so I really have a problem with Emma on this one, but um, yeah, I mean, that's really, I think that's the crux of it. It's a, it's a dislike of the popular of the masses. And unfortunately the masses are working class, the very people she's, she claims to be a champion of. So yeah. yeah, I guess I more saw this whole essay and I, like I said, I feel like you can view it with multiple meanings. I get what you're sure. getting at, but mm -hmm. it's like for me, I just immediately like how ideas work and like I know mm -hmm. how like she was kind of getting at that like the minorities are what push the ideas and I mm -hmm. feel like there is truth in that. That it is like sure. ideas inherently come from individuals because mm -hmm. in the, the day all we are is individuals. So like, yeah. I mean, even like when you're saying a mass of people, you're referring to a mass of people but within that mass they're individuals so mm -hmm. obviously you no, know, like ideas have to come from individuals i mean i guess you could make a case that sort of they can spring up from a crowd but at the end of the day it had to have come from someone somewhere and mm -hmm. it, it, I, I do think it's she she I, I read that in that context this whole essay and mm -hmm. I, di I did like how she framed it how it was the minorities who pushed forth these um, these ideas, and then once they reach the masses, they start to become corrupted. I think there is a little mm -hmm. bit of truth in that, although mm -hmm. I get what you're getting at. It is like I'm yeah. conflicted reading this, where I can see both. It's kind of like, oh, yeah. uh, in one example they brought up was I think they literally used Jesus. Like they used Jesus as an example of how you know that idea came about. And I'm not a Christian, so I mean I have my my qualms with that, but whatever. Yeah. But I can get what they're getting at. That mm -hmm. like here is mm -hmm. this good holy concept. And then bam, crusades. <laughs> so like, yeah. you know, like it, it gets corrupted. And like once an idea has reached its time, the majority gets a hold of it. And then minorities have moved on to a new idea to push forward. And right. the, so the, the masses have perverted the old idea. You know? So the question is why that perversion happens mm -hmm. when it when it moves into the mass, into the majority. Why does it become perverted or bad or becomes the crusades or becomes something stupid or whatever? Um, and I think, I mean, I wish she had made this a little more explicit and it's possible she's not actually making this argument, but maybe I'm reading into it. But I, mm -hmm. I think that what she's saying here is, is a very important critique of democracy. So if you give democracy to the people, right, then of course the majority rules. Okay. So that means the majority is king. Now, what does a king do? <laughs> the king's primary interest is in preserving his power. Right. And so that means you do not brook any dissent if you're the king, if you're the if you're the one in power. So the majority of people know that the, they're the majority. They know that in a democracy, they are the king, that they have the ultimate power and they want to hold on to that power. And you kind of see that today. Right. You know, with the Democratic Party, <laughs> that's kind of the way they're acting. Um, and so they become authoritarian. You might even say totalitarian. They do not allow, they don't like, majorities don't like freedom of speech, 
right? Because again, freedom of speech always threatens whoever's in power, right? Whether it's a king or a democratic majority or an elite aristocracy, whatever it is, right? They don't like that. Um, and so that's why they crush dissent. They crush people who are simply outside the norms of the culture, right? Like sex workers, right? For instance, or like, like weirdo anarchist immigrant women in New York City, right? Who have ideas about sex, et cetera. So um, I think that's a very important point. I think that she's making there. It could be just my point that I'm importing mm -hmm. in there, but I, I do think it's, it's underneath her argument yeah. about the that's mass majority. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so that, so that, that filters it, that becomes a, it's a cultural issue too, because the majority polices the culture because the culture needs to help maintain their power. And so if the culture is full of free ideas and free thought, that's a threat to them. They can't, they can't allow that. And so I think that's what she's getting at in terms of the, the, the making of a vapid, boring, uniform conformist culture. The majority will always seek that in a democracy, in a democracy. Yeah, I do think she is, in a sense, kind of transcending the state concept, although she does imbue, she does imply the democracy. But like, for example, this quote right yeah. here, today is then public opinion is the omnipresent tyrant. Today is then the majority mm -hmm. represents a mass of cowards willing to accept him who mirrors its own soul and mind poverty. So it, I don't like I get that as really you could that what state or not. I, I get where yep. she's getting at. Like that's beyond the state. She's just saying as a as a mass that's this is how they react the act yeah but i think it's the political power that mm -hmm. makes them behave that way right once you have that power then you you have something to fight for something to mm -hmm. you know i mean if it's just if it's just a cultural majority i don't see the need to police it you know i don't see the need to make sure that beyonce is the most popular singer right i mean yeah. but if you have but you have political power you run the joint you run the yeah. society um and Beyonce is is supportive of your attempts to run society, which, by the way, Beyonce has been right. Then you're going to then you're going to kill anybody who's critical of Beyonce. Um, yeah. And it sounds silly and banal, but that's actually what goes on, right? I mean, Beyonce literally actually has supported those in power, the majority, right? And and therefore her critics must be done away with. Yeah, I mean, I guess I read I read this essay as more being descriptive than prescriptive like I, I was more just like reading it as she was describing a phenomenon of the minorities and the masses whether or not the state is involved i do think the state me obviously i would think as a corrupting influence i don't mm. feel like she was giving any solutions in this essay she was just more describing a phenomenon because she did use it in relation to art like i don't feel like she was implying that because she was kind of saying that's sort of what democracy is even in light of you know because she's we got to remember she's a socialist so she was also describing it in lines of like you know, property and such or, or, or stuff like that. So I, I have a hard time thinking past just simply a state because I'm more of like an ANCAP agorist type. Yeah. But like, but she was getting at too, like with art, with like consumerism, stuff like that. So it was more than just the state. So that was kind of what she was describing. Okay. So, so this, this comes to a very important point. So she's a socialist, but not a socialist. She's an anti-socialist, but also a socialist. She's <laughs> and she's opposed to state socialism. She's opposed to statist socialism. Yeah. So can you go, go to that paragraph where she talks about breaking apart the mass and finding the individuals within it? Oh, That's her prescription. That's a prescription right there. I, it's it's like, I think it's in the second, uh, it's like the bottom third, last third of it, maybe. She talks about, she says she wants to break apart the mass and the majority and to, fi to find the individuals within it. I don't remember that's that to, one. That's to me the crux of it. And that's her prescription. Mm. She's, she's a devolutionist. She wants to devolve state power, of course. So she wants a particular kind of socialism, which we now call council communism. I mean, that's kind of like the political science term for it. Just means decentralized communism, which, you know, is, I suppose, preferable, but it has, it's its own form of hell in my opinion but yeah it's the idea is society will be uh, a, a confederation of worker collectives where we you know the workers in an industry or a, or a enterprise a company will take it over and run it collectively or co as a cooperative and then they might communicate and and uh, cooperate with other collectives and somehow like manage all of society in that way but it's not ever made clear <laughs> but um the problem there, of course, is that those little worker collectives become their own tyrannies, you know, their own tyranny. Uh, by the way, the majority will be the, the tyrant in those collectives as well. Right. I mean, but come on. Yeah. 
Yeah. So, but that, that is, I mean, you know, but that's, it's important and it's liberatory at least to show that the centralization of political power is possibly the most evil thing in politics. That's very much Emma Goldman right there. Yeah, no, it's, it's funny. I know me and you would probably be like, well, okay, go for it. But I do think there is a implication because I do get the, because she was all about killing capitalists. So, mm -hmm. um, <laughs> I mean, she's not really, she probably was not one of the ones who'd be like, okay, well, go do your thing and I'll go do mine. Because what right. my thing is, she would describe as violence. So I'm like, I mean, yeah. I'm all for you going and doing your little commune. I don't give a shit. <laughs> and right. you know what? Maybe that's what works. I don't know. <laughs> right. If it does, I'll come crawling back to you. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, that's a really important point you made. Like there is an imperialism in her thinking, right? Um, and in her actions too, right? She went and tried to kill some capitalists she had nothing to do with, right? Who wasn't employing her or anybody she knew. She was trying to save the workers over there in Pennsylvania, in rural Pennsylvania, right? She didn't even live there. <laughs> like, so hello, why are you like, it's like invading a country. What's the difference really? Invading a country, killing the king to liberate the people underneath him. I mean, that's the same thing as the United States did in Iraq, right? Um, it's, yeah, I think you're right. If there is a, if society is all a loose confederation of collectives, she's going to want to like go kill the bad collectives. <laughs> <laughs> right i would think yeah that seems to be her impulse i did want to touch on too she did she kind of was implying how the majority is at fault for everything let me find the quote she actually has some pretty damn good quotes for that um god fuck where is it uh do, 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 do. said but i insist that not that not the handful of parasites but the mass itself is responsible for this horrible state of affairs it clings to its masters loves the whip and is the first to cry crucify which to me as soon as i read that i mean i mentioned i'm an agorist Conkin, right to the head, like immediately to me, because it was kind of like you, because you are subservient, you have created the master is essentially mm. what she's getting at there, which mm -hmm. I mean, that's one thing I've really loved about reading all these different anarchist thinkers is how they kind of there's so much crossover. And mm. a lot of them, I feel like there's all of them are in a lot of different ways, sort of trying to describe the same thing, but coming from it from different ways. And some of them sort of falter and don't really necessarily get there. Like, mm -hmm. that's what I get from all these different anarchist thinkers, you know. So I don't know if you have anything to say on that or what. What do you mean by that? What's the crossover among whom? Who's being who's being crossed over? Well, well, they're like I got for like Konkin, like Konkin. You know, you, I don't know if you've read Konkin. Like uh, I've heard you say before, you're more of an agorist. But he yeah. he he has a he has a few quotes where he's kind of like you know we create the master by being subserv subservient to them. And I was just okay. it's just I was more getting at how there's these crossovers between certain thinkers where you can be like holy shit that's so and so. Like, I don't know if Konkin has, like, got that from Goldman. It's something they've kind of came oh, to similar conclusions. But she's kind of getting at the fact that the majority is subservient to the the the, the political uh, elite is because it's what grants them their power. Mm -hmm. And so, like, you can blame the political elite, but at the end of the day, it's you that's fucking capitulating and doing it. So, 100%. you know, and it's very an empowering message. And, you know, we mm -hmm. like to bitch and moan about the state, but it's like, well, what the fuck are you doing? Exactly. <laughs> like, of course. Yeah, of course. Yeah. The leaders are there because of us. Yeah. So, and, and yeah, of course, it's because of our choices. I mean, meaning the majority's choices, right? They chose those leaders. I mean, if they didn't, if the majority didn't want those leaders, what do you think would happen? Come on. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, this is true for all regimes. And this is what, you know, Michel Foucault famously argued that that every regime is essentially chosen by the people underneath it. Mm -hmm. And so that power flows from the bottom upward as much as it does from the top down. Mm. yeah which i mean that kind of leads into the probably like one of my last points is how they were touching on how populism or emma goldman did touch on how populism is basically a tool of the elite and she mm. goes uh political cunning ever sings the praise of the mass the poor majority the outrage the abuse the giant more majority if it only it would follow us which is very true you know if we're doing this uh divide of populism versus elitism that is kind of i mean i mean I know populism is kind of a empty vessel. It can be used for good, used for bad, right. but it is ultimately what the state uses is populism or, or tries to. I mean, maybe mm -hmm. you can make a case that they use some sort of elitism themselves, but I mean, they are essentially appealing to the masses and be like, oh, hey, this is what you want, you know? Sure. So, yeah. Yeah. The creating of the creating, creating a mass out of people or making people into a mass. Of course, every political regime needs that, especially, and again, this, we have to underscore this, you know, we're talking about the United States at the turn of the 20th century when its population is expanding massively, rapidly every day with mass immigration, mass immigration. Again, you know, she was part of a mass movement of people into this country, another mass. But yeah, it's, it's talking about a very large place 
with very large cities, again, Emma Goldman lived in New York City, you know, uh, for much of her life, masses of people in the streets, you know, seemingly undifferentiated, doing the same thing, walking down the street, going to work or walking to a department store, you know, um, all the same time, seemingly like sheep. And the thing is, though, like, I know that way of thinking. I know that way of looking at people, looking at ordinary people, because I used to be that kind of person. <laughs> um, it's again, it is elitist though. And um, it's, it's unfair, I suppose, because I think it's, I think it actually speaks to the alienation and isolation of the political person. The political person is a thinker, right? The political person is an intellectual. Like we read books, we talk about stuff like this. We, you know, we talk about ideas, abstractions. We're all up in our head all the time. We're ubermensch, right? Uh, Whereas, you know, most people, so we don't really see people for who they are in the gritty, in the dirty, in the, in the day to day, you know, what, what they're actually about. We're, we're up here where we have lofty ideas and ideals and, you know, it's, we don't really know what these people want. We don't know them. We don't know their life because we think of them as a mass, but it is made of individuals with individual lives. Yeah. And I just think it's, I think it's not the healthiest way. So I, to look at people or politics. So I try to, I try to avoid that in my thinking these days, since I was, since I'm no longer a leftist, I try to think of, I avoid categorization. I hate that. I think it's yeah. very, very problematic and it, it leads to very uh, authoritarian politics too. I guess I can see it both ways. Cause I, I do think if you're dealing with individuals, you should deal with them as individuals, but I do think there is definitely mob mm -hmm. effects to be taken to account. So, I mean, a mob reacts a certain way. And yes, you can say there's an individual within each one, but we're looking at this as a whole and how it how it interacts with other things. And certain phenomenons occur when you're dealing with masses. So, I mean, I get entirely what you're saying. There, You do, it's a very careful, you have to be very careful because I do feel like we too often, especially less like, uh, I mean, I guess it's not us because you're not, you don't describe yourself as such, but libertarians and cats, whatever we are. This is one thing I've said many times. We are such fucking binary thinkers. So like we are <laughs> yeah. capable of walking and, and chewing gum kind of deal. You know what I mean? Like you can, you can look at things on the spectrum or whatever. Like, so it's not, it, it, you can totally be like, Hey, this is a mass and this individual, it doesn't have to be like, you know, look at these fucking peasants and that's it. You know what I mean? Like there's, <laughs> you can look at it at a higher level. So sure. yeah. I, but, and I think that's how I read it, but I, and I totally do think, and I don't think someone who's not politically and you did touch on this a few times that it's I feel like it's super important for us to remember to we shouldn't really be defining ourselves as being against the state. And it, I mean, don't get me wrong. I am against the state. I don't mm -hmm. like the state. It's kind of like a lot of people have been touching on a lot lately. I'm an atheist, um, but I do think while I do describe myself as an atheist, I don't define myself as such. If that mm. makes sense. Like, I don't see myself as against religion. That is not how I define myself. If anything, I'm past it. I don't care. You know what I mean? Like, and that's kind of how I see how we need to move when it comes to relation to the state, where it's like, I mean, obviously you need to care about it, but don't, you shouldn't be so, so in your head and defining yourself as being in something against the state, or that's how you define yourself. And you need to be able to interact with normal people because if you can't, like, mm. it's because, like, with this whole minority majority thing, if you want to influence the majority, you need to make your ideas amenable to the majority. If you're sure. a cunt, nobody wants to interact with you. Mm. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, that's how I see it. I mean, yeah. 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 And by the way, Emma Goldman was uh, infamous for her. Um, unlikability she was not a nice person and she was very known for being very mean to people and i think again that's that's from living a political life it's from having a hard life from being political in that way and being a radical thinker i know this very well it's not easy right it's not easy it's not a fun life to be a radical political thinker in this in this society at least um yeah and i think she just she suffered from the alienation and isolation from that and i think that's probably i'm guessing i mean i i'm also hesitant to psychoanalyze people, but you know, I do, I suspect that has to something to do with her irascibility and probably, you know, why she in part, why she couldn't ever command a, a large movement around her or a large enough movement to keep her out of prison and to keep her from being thrown back into the Soviet union. So, um, yeah, no, I think, um, but I, I was going to say about the mass or the mob, I think I like to think of it as individuals who join mobs rather than they're just a mob. That person is, a, is is part of a mob. It's an individual who, for whatever reason, chose to join this particular mob at this particular time, something I know a little bit about recently. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah. Yeah.
No, I agree. I mean, like I'm saying, you can, you can, I feel like it's a, you're describing different phenomenons. You do have to realize at the end of the day, like each person within that mob is an individual. So mm-hmm. it's a, you know, kind of the union of egoists to, to uh, pull out Sterner yeah. a little bit. Right. Uh, with that, I feel like we've hit on like just about everything I wanted to. Okay. Um, so I don't know if there's anything you felt like we missed in relation to Goldman that you wanted to touch on or I'm looking at my long list. I have a list here written <laughs> down. Uh, no, I think I, I think we got everything there. Actually, it was pretty, pretty efficient. Yeah. 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 <laughs> no, I feel like we took a lot of the same notes. I could tell. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. So if you want to go ahead and drop your plugs. Oh, um, everyone should go to renegadeuniversity.com. We have an incredible event coming up October 8th to the 10th. Renegade University weekend in Texas. We're going to have just the most amazing lineup. Hotep Jesus, Scott Horton, Cody Wilson, Deirdre McCluskey, and Jack the Perfume Nationalist, and Buck Johnson and me, October 8th to the 10th. Uh, We're about to, by the way, we're about to, people might want to wait to get tickets because in a couple days we're going to release 10 new VIP tickets, which are the most most popular tickets. And we realize that's what people really want, which gives you full access to all of us for the entire three days, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, including a big Friday event, uh, dinner and drinks and hanging out all night long with all of us. And then a whole weekend of events um, at Buck Johnson's place, big spread, one acre spread in Lockhart, Texas, just south of Austin. So people should check that out. We have a bunch of courses out. I have the History of the American Left, which I mentioned that starts next Monday. It's a four- four-part webinar and uh it's the most exciting thing i've taught at ru because it's sort of my life and it's thing maybe i probably what i know the most about american history and i love teaching it i always have and um we have a course on deleuze and guattari taught by daniel coffin a lot of people are interested in that and we have more courses coming out so check out renegadeuniversity.com and then unregistered podcast that's my baby comes out every week we have a new episode just now it's me actually talking about the history of the american left with buck johnson um but we have i have different guests every week as i'm sure a lot of your listeners know so that's what i'm doing yeah just to touch on one thing i just discovered jack the perfume nationalist on james gentleman's show my buddy james yeah uh, fucking I, he's such a goddamn hoot like i, like, I, don't know. I know the funniest <laughs> like, guy i, I want to get him on i don't know if you, you probably haven't but i want to get him on tower power hour which is this other show i do which is more like a it's like a legion of skanks meets part of the problem which is more like dicks and fart jokes i'm like dude that guy would be fucking hilarious he's the best <laughs> I love him. So like I was, it was smart. a serious conversation with James, and I still was cracking up. Like, oh, uh, yeah. he's—I I need to go check out more of his work. He's fucking hilarious. Uh, yeah. With that, I, you can find me on you know the No Way Jose YouTube channel. You can find me on anywhere on all the major podcatchers on Odyssey. I will be doing uh, Benjamin Tucker with Ace later this week. If you want to catch that early, uh, hit my Patreon up at uh, patreon.com slash No Way Jose Twenty Twenty. Like, share, subscribe, all that shit. And with that, we're out. Thank you, Thad. I really appreciate having you on. <laughs> Thank you. It was fun. Oh, it was fun. And broadcast.